0: Hey, good morning, church. My name is Ben Seaman, and I serve on staff here as our lead minister. And as Amy has said, we're so glad that you're here. If this is your first Sunday here, you must be uh, intuitive. You picked a great Sunday. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series entitled "Live Free or Die." It's one of the things that attracted to me uh, attracted me to you guys during the interview process. We don't say things like "live free or die" back in Ohio. We say things like "bless your heart." Okay, uh, I like New Englanders. You're not passive aggressive. You say what's on your mind. If you can't handle it, start a blog. Uh, So, over the next six weeks, we're going to journey together. That was funny. You can laugh. Through the book, maybe it wasn't, through the book of Galatians. And Galatians is a book that has many themes, but one of them is the theme of freedom. And so, over the next six weeks, we're going to land on chapter six on Easter Sunday, talking about the freedom from death and and sin that Jesus um, conquered on our behalf in our place uh, when he rose from the dead. And so, there's two ways that we want to engage. We want you to engage with this teaching series. The first one is we want to just encourage you and challenge you every week over the next six weeks to read uh, one chapter of Galatians. So between now and next Sunday, we'd encourage you to read it. Some of our life groups are going through Galatians. You can read it on your own. Uh, As uh, Amy mentioned, if you go to rccsalem.com and swipe left, like Tinder some of you know what that is, to teaching series, uh, all of the notes and discussion guides are there for you. And the second way that you can engage with the teaching series is, you'll notice if you haven't already, there's a massive scripture wall uh, on the back as you're leaving on our chalkboard wall that our creative team put together for us. And so what, what we'd like for you to do is you're reading Galatians this week, chapter one. Next Sunday, when you come back, we've got some markers in the back that you can highlight, circle, write question marks, little prayers around the chunks of scripture that are speaking to you. So it'd be kind of cool to see between now and Easter what the Lord's up to. It, when when uh, This might be different when we read the Bible, not just for ourselves, but for a collective community. So I'm excited to see what you guys come up with and how the Lord and the Spirit's working in our midst as you're reading Galatians uh, with us. I do have one uh, family announcement that I need to make as our lead minister. And that is this, we, we, we try to connect with our, as many adult leaders and students and parents and uh, those that serve on our family ministry team. Uh, and so the announcement is this, that Tyler Van Deventer uh, has been on staff for a little over uh, a year now, doing multiple things as he's pursuing his ministry degree from Johnson Bible College in Tennessee. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Olivia Basically, was our graphic designer for free. Uh, she gets paid to do that at another company, but loves the Lord and and served us in that way, creating all of our graphics, giving us a new, modern, more relevant feel when she rebranded uh, the church and we moved into this space. And, but but I want you to know that when Paul builds the church or when Jesus builds the church, Paul says that um, he builds it with living stones. And that means people come in and out of our lives, and we go in and out of other people's lives all the time, and there are seasons for things, right? And somehow we realize this in the corporate world or with our friends, but in the church world, it's sort of unexpected when people don't move on. And so I want to encourage you to keep us as a church in your prayers and the event of enters in your prayers as Tyler has stepped down from the staffing position this week and we're praying for them. We want good for them as they seek the Lord in their next season. I want to encourage you to pray for us, for your staff and your elders as we are looking to seek and fulfill or fill uh, that position in the weeks ahead because we want to be a church that unapologetically is for families uh, in our community. Cool? All right, moving on. In Galatians, Paul talks about freedom in multiple ways, and today we're going to talk about in week one the freedom from performance. Uh, one of my favorite pastors that I follow is a guy by the name of Jeff Brody, Canadian. Uh, there are Christians up there right here, and he says um, we've never heard many more. Cho- we've never had many more choices, but we've never felt less free. Do, do you sense that that might be true for you? That I think we think that freedom comes from money multiple options, multiple decisions, that if we have multiple options, then we can be free. But does freedom actually come from multiple options? I read an article from US Today, US Today, that's always hard to say coherently, this week. um, And I I read an article of a mom and pop shop that sold multiple jams at food markets, like on Saturday mornings. And they decided to release 26 uh, different flavors, which makes sense, right? More pallets, more people are going to give us their money, revenues going up. Now, if you work in PR or in sales of any kind, you know that more options doesn't actually equal freedom, yes? Uh, because this couple found out that their sales only increased by 3% that Saturday. And so the following Saturday, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to only sell six different kinds of flavors, And because they decided to offer less, revenue increased by 30% the following weekend. Have you ever been to a fancy restaurant, you know, where they charge you for the water? And uh, yeah, just me. Okay. Um, (laughs) You guys awake? Uh, Hey, it's not snowing today. It's awesome. Yeah. And so uh, have you been to a fancy restaurant where the waiter or waitress comes to you and says, what would you like to drink? And you would say, I would like a glass of water to which they go, Would you like tap water, mineral spring water, well water, distilled water, sparkling water, bottled water, or water with a lemon? I don't know, lady, put water in a cup and put ice in it. Like, what are you talking about? Does more options actually equal more freedom? I hated school shopping, (laughs) and my mom would take me to American Eagle back in the day when I was young enough to fit in their clothes, and we would would look at the wall. There's like boyfriend jeans, I don't know, tight-fit jeans, loose-fit jeans, and we think that more options is better for our brain, but through research, we know that more options actually doesn't multiply our thinking efforts. It divides them. You ever been to a coffee shop like a Starbucks? Someone in front of you, you know it's the first time they've ever been there, right? In the Midwest, when we're making fun of you, we say, bless your heart because we're passive aggressive unlike you New Englanders and uh, you you ever been there and and I say oh bless their heart right it's their first time it's a soccer mom soccer moms don't don't shoot me and they've got three kids they're busy they've never been to a starbucks maybe it's an older person or younger person and they're like I want a vent 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 I want coffee with three shots uh where, where was your was your cow grass fed and I'm like come on move it I I want my own coffee. Just because we have more options doesn't mean that we have more freedom, does it? Well, what about this question? Does freedom come from actually having no restrictions at all? Like, Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where people just did whatever you said, right? And a lot of people through multiple marriage counselings and weddings that I've done had that, right? Being married is going to fix everything, Yeah, the devil doesn't show up into Genesis until after Adam and Eve are married. To be in marriage means to be in conflict, and you just got to figure out. But would that be in a world where there were no restrictions? Now, I looked high and low. So if you're at first service, don't cheat, all right? We've got a smart crowd. I've looked high and low for the greatest quote about freedom without restrictions. And I I want you to guess who actually said this. It's time to see what I can what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right or wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Who said that? Elsa from Frozen. Yes, all, like there were several guys in here, I won't call you out, that knew that. It's okay. We're not questioning your masculinity, all right? Relax. Elsa from Frozen, right? You thought she it was a nice, cute <coughs> movie, but she's teaching you horrible values. No, I'm kidding. It's a great movie, but wouldn't it be great if I had some water. Wouldn't it be great if we could live without (laughs) restrictions? One of my favorite pastors, uh, retired, is a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Played at a church back in the 80s in Manhattan and really had a heart for white-collar, wealthy, intellectual, young, working professionals. I think that's a field that we often forget sometimes when we're thinking about people to reach for the gospel. And he wrote a book called The Reason for God. It's a great book if you're not uh, a believer yet, even if you are, because he wrote that book over several lunches, dinners, and coffee appointments with people that were far from God and had a problem with like religion and science. And, you know, if God is graceful, why did the Holocaust happen? Uh, Why are Christian hypocrites? And so he wrote this book based on conversations that he had with different people addressing different questions honest questions that people have. Well, in the book, The Reason for God, uh, Tim drops some truth bombs. He says, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restriction as finding the right ones, the liberating ones, which I thought was a very interesting quote, that maybe restrictions, maybe limited options are for our good, even though we don't really want to admit it or even Realize it. So the question is, where in the world does freedom come from? And this is one of the primary questions as to why Paul is writing the book of Galatians. So here's the deal: if if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, uh, Paul is actually writing to a community in modern day Turkey. We've got a slide here for you, known as Galatia. You see that city, uh, Ephesus, right? There's a book in the Bible called Ephesians. So so Paul. Goes into a city and, and does what we would call sort of a demographic study: who lives here, what do they value, are they wealthy, are they poor, what do they do for fun, what are they, you know, what ticks them off, what makes them happy. Thanks, Brian. And so he goes in and plants a church based on the the demographic studies. He brings up uh, he brings up leaders, men and women, to lead the church, and then he moves on. And as he moves on, he gets reports back on how the churches are doing. And based on how the churches are doing, he writes them letters, like before email and AOL and dial up, he had to hand write these letters. And these letters were meant to be uh, letters of encouragement, letters of judgment. Sometimes he drops the hammer, sometimes he wants to love the church and rub rub their back. But Paul writes these little letters tucked away in the back of your New Testament about how to be a healthy church. So if you're new and you're like, what in the world is the church supposed to be about? Read Paul's little letters that are about five to six chapters a book, and it gives you insight into how, what a healthy church actually looks like. Now, when Paul writes the book of Galatians, uh, Paul is um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's not in a good mood. Let's just say that. This is the only letter where Paul comes out of the gate, literally dropping the hammer for what's at stake. And so, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1. If not, the text will be on the screen. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 6 through 10, Paul says this I am astonished. All right, the NIV is a little weak. He's ticked. He's ticked. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one you called to live in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people, and we'll get to that that group of people, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. When Paul says some people are throwing you into aversion uh, confusion. That's kind of the same language that is used when Paul or when Jesus casts out a demon. So it believes what you mat- it, What you believe matters. Ideas have consequences. And he says, "I can't believe we planted this church together. RCC is a church plant. It was birthed about eighteen years ago." And Paul's like, "And Amy, uh, our family director, was one of the founding families that helped get this church up and running." It's like, you know, Amy, Chris, like, wh- what happened? Well, well, the message was simple. You're, you know, you're a sinner. You need grace. Jesus came, died, rose again on your behalf. What went wrong here? And Paul continues in this letter in verse eight, but even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. So evidently what's being taught at this church, Paul is like, just send him to hell. (laughs) Paul is not a um, peacemaker. (laughs) He's a very dominant person. Uh, He's very honest much like us in New England. As we have already said, so I now say to you again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel other than the one that I've been preaching to you, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? It's not a popularity contest. Or God's. Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, uh, I would not be a servant of Christ. How many people in ministry have those issues? Well, they're just passive-aggressively trying to please other people. So Paul is saying, here's what's at stake, church. Most people in the church believe that, uh, uh, let me back up, if you have friends that are not here, and you ask them uh, questions about their views on religion, more times than not, they know about Christianity. I mean, we are the most informed society in the history of our country. We're just not developed. We're not mature. And so if you ask any friend, tell me the 101 about Christianity, Basically, you can choose heaven or hell, sinners go to hell, and people, you know, with grace go to heaven or whatever. But Paul says, there's another teaching that you're putting your life under that is equally going to put you under God's curse. And this is something they'd never heard of. You see, what the church in Galatians was struggling with was not being sinners, was that they were being good, moral Christian girls and boys. See, they, 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 were, they were banking on their performance to get them in heaven. You know people like this, because you might probably be one, right? I went to church 50 times out of the 52 Sundays last year. God, you, you why, am, why am I being diagnosed with cancer? Pastor said I need to give 10% of my offering. I gave 90 and lived off of 10. Why did my husband leave me? We believe that grace is a thing, but we function out of a performance-based relationship, don't we? And the answer is yes. And what Paul is saying is that sometimes sin keeps you away from the Father, but sometimes goodness keeps you away from the Father. I can read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. I attend church every time the doors are open. I'm in 87 Bible studies. I listen to only Christian music and only watch Christian movies. And you wonder why you don't have any friends. <laughs> and pa- and Paul's like, how many people have you baptized? You know a lot about the Bible, but do you have any influence? Who's going to come to church if you actually invite them? Who cares if you know Greek? Jesus knows Greek. He wrote the Bible. He knows every language. See, your morality, <laughs> your goodness can equally keep you away from the Father. There's this group that Paul is, is calling out. They're called Judaizers. Can you say Judaizers? Judaizers? All right, that's about half of you. The other half are asleep. You need to know that we have coffee. Judaizers <laughs> believe that freedom comes from performance, restriction, and rules. Boring. In other words, if Judaizers were here, and they are, we just call them different names here, I think, in the church. I don't know what that is off my head. But if Judaizers were here, they would have clapped when eight people got baptized last Sunday. And Judaizers in this church were leading life groups. They might have been elders. They might have been on staff. They might have uh, helped in the kids' ministry. But what a Judaizer believes is what a lot of Christians believe, because they don't believe God's love is for them. And so what, what they teach behind closed doors is, look, look, I'm so, I'm so glad you gave your life to the Lord. I'm so glad you expressed that in baptism. But, but he, here's the deal. We know you're a gentile, and a gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. It's it's like a generic word. We're we're technically gentiles unless if you grew up Jewish, then you would be a Jew. I I, I know I know that you converted to to the Jesus movement, but here's the deal: you still have to be circumcised. Arrgh! Awkward conversation. You still have to sacrifice animals. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. You still got to slit a goat's throat to be forgiven. You still got to do ceremonial washings. You still got to do all of the Levitical celebrations in the Old Testament. You see where I'm getting at? Paul's getting a sniff of this, that morality and goodness is damning this church, not sin, not fornication, not adultery. It's high church attendance. It's knowing a lot about the Bible, but never letting Jesus, the God of the Bible, actually form and transform. Form them. Paul in Galatians 1.13 says this, you have heard of my previous life in Judaism, right? Basically, Paul's saying, I am awesome at being a Jew. <laughs> How intensely I persecuted the church of God. I don't know if you know this or not, but Paul was so zealous that he actually killed Christians because a Jew does not believe in the Trinity. A Jew would never believe that God would actually become a human being, let alone the ghettos of Nazareth. And so if you believe that, I was so zealous for the law and being a good little boy, a good little Christian boy or what a Jewish boy, that I would kill people that believed that Jesus was God. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my own people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I I was a millennial Jewish man, and I had boomers, men in their 50s, coming to my Bible studies, asking me my questions, how I see the law. I crushed it at being a good, religious, moral person. I think a lot of us look at our faith sort of like a ladder, at least performance-based, right? And the more good we do and the more we grow, uh, we, we can climb higher on the ladder. I thought about climbing, but I don't want to be a YouTube pastor for falling down, so I'm not going to do it. And so for Paul, Paul's like, look, and we'll get into this next week, we're just scraping the iceberg. Paul says, look, there's 613 commandments in the law, the Torah, the first five books of your Bible. You need to read the Old Testament because every question that Jesus has asked in the Gospels comes from the Old Testament. So sometimes you'll get Christians that don't understand the Bible and you'll say the Old Testament's irrelevant. Are you kidding me? It's the thing that Jesus taught for him and was asked about. And so Paul says, I've obeyed all the laws, and then I obeyed all the customs. I cut my hair a certain way. I grew my beard out a certain way. I wore certain clothes. Uh, because I was such a Jew and so religious, I didn't want to mess up anything, right? And so if there was a law that says you can't work on the Sabbath, I would say that you can't go 10 feet outside of your house so that you would be tempted to work. That's how religious I was. And then he says, it grew in me a passion, a hatred for people that called themselves Christians. How in the world could you ever believe in the Trinity? Why in the world would anybody ever think that a homeless dude from Nazareth who was a carpenter, who threw parties at other people's houses, who turned water to wine, would actually be God in the flesh? And because I was so good at being religious and obeying rules, I became judgmental, a hypocrite, somebody that knew what I was against and nobody really knew what I was for. It's easy to have a relationship with the Lord if it's about performance, isn't it? Because then you can kind of measure if you're good at being a Christian. My friend, uh, Jamie, I met him in Brooklyn, New York, when I was interning uh, in my 20s at a church. So if you're in your 20s, don't leave your 20s and you visit New York. It's a great experience. And uh, my friend Jamie grew up in a very conservative uh, home in, uh, in, in Alabama. Like the, there were like more Christians than Jesus down there. And uh, he would tell me that his faith experience went sim- something similar to Paul, where he would come home with grades, and he would say, Mom and Dad, look at me. I got A's and B's. And literally, I'm not making this up, literally, his mom would look at him and say, well, Jamie, would God be pleased with B's? Doesn't he want our best for us? Uh, I'm eight years old. Uh, You're lucky I, I got what I got. And that developed a complex in my friend Jamie's brain. And as he grew older, his family would say things like, you know, why did you hit Billy on the playground? Or why did you say this? Or why did you talk back to your mom? Would Jesus be pleased with that? And so so Jamie only knew the Lord in terms of a guilt trip. If, if he didn't perform well, then, uh, you know, God would not be pleased with him. And my friend Jamie, for all the wrong reasons, developed a prayer life. You know, you can develop spiritual habits for all the wrong reasons because you think God wants you to perform well. And so, so prayer is like basically like trying to do like a balance beam routine at the Olympics, hoping that you'll stick the landing and God would be pleased, pleased with your little prayer. Jamie developed a prayer life because Jamie developed ulcers. He, he became so worried that the Lord would kill him in his sleep for not being a good Christian boy, they would often pray for God to not take him in his sleep. This became his theology, this is important, became um, such a horrendous thing that it developed a medical condition because he thought God was after him. He thought God was going to kill him because he didn't perform well. Jamie developed ulcers, many ulcers, to the point where he had to be rushed to the hospital because he was so stressed out and so freaked out that if he closed his eyes that night and he didn't get a B in biology, God would take his very life. You see, Paul says, I've outperformed every person in Judaism. I have found no freedom in my performance to be religious. So let me ask you, where do you find yourself striving these days? Where, 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 where do you find yourself believing in the quote-unquote love of God? But really, if you are honest, if I took you out to coffee and I stared at you down while I drank my coffee, because pe- I'm a pastor, right? People are going to say like the church thing right away, hope I can move on. I'm really good at staring. It's a gift I have. <laughs> and then you really got comfortable, and you're, you know what? I just, you know... You know, that whole, like, if I die today thing, Thing. I don't know if I would make it, make it into heaven. It's such, a, like, an over-church thing, people say. I don't know. Why? Where does that come from? I'm not you, but I would guess that you think your faith and your relationship with the Lord is based on your performance. How devastating. And also, if I'm being honest, the other side of the coin, how arrogant. That you would think that, that God's love for you is based on your performance. But we grow up in houses like Jamie. We go to churches and, and believe religion like Paul where, where we if we never perform, think about this when you were a kid or a young adult or even now. When do you feel loved? Sometimes it's the only time we feel loved is when we're being praised for what we've done. We, we were the lead salesman or saleswoman. We got the best grades in fourth grade. We did this thing and, and our mom for the first time said, we're so proud of you. The father never says, he's so proud of us for praying or reading the Bible a lot. He never says, I'm so proud of you that you went to church 53 times, even though you only had 52 weekends in the year. He says, I'm proud of you because you're my kid. I love you. You're going to screw up a lot. We're going to have a lot of great stories. But your ability to be awesome or not awesome at religion is not dependent upon your performance. It's dependent upon my son's performance. And listen, if you're remotely interested in Jesus, and I say that to people that have been here for 18 years, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're interested in Jesus. If you're remotely interested in Jesus, whether you've been here for 18 years or this is your first Sunday, let me read to you what a workaholic, type A, D, dominant driven person finally realized. It's found in Galatians 1, verse 15. Paul says this, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the... Look, that, that, that should change your life. Here's what Paul is saying. Before I even knew religion was about a performance, before I can get on the high beams and stick the landing and everyone would give me a 10... Before I was, before, here's an ethical conversation, before I was even labeled a good person, a bad person, or a morally neutral person, when I was born, when my mom was there, because that's what happens at birth, and when my dad was there, I'm thinking like, so like if you watch the show, This Is Us, and so why wouldn't you? It's like the best show ever. And, and the family's coming in and, and your mom's crying and your dad's high-fiving his buds and everyone's taking photos and there's balloons and somebody brings cake and you're like, I'm 30 seconds old, I can't eat it, I don't have teeth yet, right? Everybody's excited that you've arrived. And Paul has said, this is what makes the Christianity so beautiful, Paul has said, before I even sinned, or before I actually did a good thing, there's another person in the waiting room, so to speak. It was my heavenly father. And he was waiting, dying for the opportunity that I would come to a point in my life where he would introduce me to his son and say, Here's a deal, Ben. Here's a deal, here, here's a deal, Paul. I sent my son on your behalf to perform for you, knowing that you would never be able to live the perfect life that you needed to live to be in my presence. My son took care of it. Would you receive that? And for some of us, if we've been a Christian long enough, that doesn't sit well with us, because now, especially if we're type A, and honestly, I'm not trying to be funny, if we we have anxiety issues, that doesn't sit well with us, because what can we control now? I don't know if you can c- control the love of God as much as you should be run over by it. I think it's more of a, a river than it is a debating hall at a college university. The writers of the Bible are not trying to prove to you that God exists. They're trying to tell you what God is like. And God is like a father that watched you be born and was waiting to introduce you to his son. The one thing <laughs> that the father wanted from you all along. And Paul says in Galatians 1, chapter 3, this sermon's like an episode of loss. We started in the middle and then went to the end. Now we're finishing at the beginning. In Galatians 1, 3, Paul says this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father, to whom uh, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Judaizers had a math equation that went like this. Jesus plus your performance equaled your freedom. But gospel math has an equation that goes like this. Jesus plus literally nothing else equals your freedom. Because if the son goes to the cross, and you still have to like be circumcised, give 87% of your money, go to 87 Bible... I don't know why I have a thing for 87. Go to 87 Bible studies, do all these things then like, if you're Jesus, you're like, why did I be crucified under capital punishment if that sacrifice wasn't enough? Even our attempts to be good are offensive to Jesus, because you're missing the point. The point is, you don't have to perform anymore. I've done it for you. Relax, relax, and come have a relationship with me. So here are Jesus' big three takeaways in Galatians 1. Number one is that Jesus came into the world on a rescue mission. Jesus did not come to be a good moral Sunday school Bible teacher. I've been sick most of 2019. (laughs) I'm I'm great now, thank the Lord. But there's this thing called an urgent care that my wife has been trying to get me to go to, and eventually I went. And I got news that said my situation was a lot worse than as a man I didn't want to look at. Your situation is a lot worse than what you really want to look at you don't need a nice teacher. You need a rescuer. Your sin doesn't just separate you from God. Your morality doesn't just separate you from God. It seeps into your bones and affects every way of living. We, we don't need a moral teacher. You can get that in any other religion. We, we need a rescuer, someone that's willing to have the guts to say, this is the reality of your situation, I'm going to die for it, and I'm going, I'm never going to run away from you. Secondarily, Jesus outperformed all other religious performances, and we'll get into that next week. Thirdly, Jesus came to be the object of our faith. If somebody ever looks at you and says, you just need to have more faith, just do what we do in the Midwest, isn't that special? You can't have more. What does that even mean? Your faith doesn't save you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. Your ability to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and upside down doesn't save you. What saves you is the object of your faith, which in Christianity is Jesus Christ himself. And if Jesus didn't actually live, or if he did and he lied and he's a fraud and he didn't go to the cross, you can have all the faith you want. You're still going to be dead in your sin and propped up in your own righteousness. But Paul says that Jesus is, is the object of our faith. He either came, went to the cross and rose again or he didn't. So you don't need to stress out about not performing well and having more faith so that God will love you. That's ridiculous. God loves you because his son was faithful on your behalf, even though we're not. And so here's a big idea, friends, I'll close with this. Where does freedom come from? Freedom comes Freedom comes from a performance uh, found in a, freedom from performance is found in a mutually exclusive love relationship where Jesus gives up his rights and goes to the cross, we give up our rights and our desires and meet him at the cross. May you find this week and believe this week your relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with Jesus' performance. Lord, we thank you so much for an opportunity to listen to your word. Uh, I don't actually believe everything I'm saying because I'm struggling with it too. Uh, A lot of how I live, I do base my ability to do my job and be a good husband on my performance. And so collectively, I just want to rebuke uh, any false story that we've believed that we're not loved unless we perform well. We thank you for your son, that he went to the cross on our behalf, that had nothing to do with our ability to perform well. We thank you that your son was faithful when we're not, was perfect when we never could be, and is willing to be with us should we accept him.